Hello, and welcome to the Texas in Transition podcast. I'm Arnoldo Mata, one of your hosts for this podcast. Texas in Transition looks at the history and development of the ongoing political, cultural, and societal transitions that mark the state from its inception. My co-host is Davis Rankin, a widely respected radio talk show host and former TV and newspaper reporter. And I'm a somewhat respected writer and organizational strategist. Take that for what it's worth. We're located in Deep South Texas, and that's our starting point. You can contact us at texasintransition at gmail.com. This is our introductory podcast where we talk about what this podcast will be about. Now, here's Davis. It's been so long. What do we want to talk about? We want to talk about what we're going to talk about, what we're going to right. do. Well, uh, our original idea, let me see. Let me summarize it if I can. Our original idea was this. There's a lot of history. And every second that passes, there's even there's, more history. There's even more history, right? But there is a lot of history that we don't know about. Yeah. And and in a, in some ways, we kind of take for granted because uh, I think everybody, in one way or another, has learned history or a certain portion of history yeah. from a certain perspective. Yes. And it's not that the person who is absorbing it is doing it on purpose, but just us. That's just the way sometimes history is written, that certain perspectives are left out and certain events are also left out because they are deemed not to be important. But they're important to somebody. Yeah. Or sometimes they're just not known. One of the things I hope we can do is discover discover, um, is to uh, expose events and attitudes and casts of mind that um, obviously exist, but they're not known to the larger world, or not, 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 not known to somebody. Right. And they change yeah. their attitude or their minds on, um, I guess we're all pretty oblivious in some ways, living our lives, going, going down the road, and we just don't pay attention to right. not I mean, everything. It just, it just doesn't, we don't seem to notice it. Uh, yeah. Primarily because we, we really didn't know about it. But uh, originally what you and I wanted to talk about was the the far riot, and that's what kind of got us going in 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 this. And the more we explored it, the more we saw that it was not a single event yeah. that um, caused all these change. Um, but in fact, there's a lot of things that happened before that far riot, and a lot of things that happened after the far riot. It what would you say the riot just didn't? It just didn't happen one day, just right out, out of nothing. You just it was a cause and just cause a cause of and the effect was the riot. And it was not a, a singular event in the sense that it, it was not connected to anything else. There, there are things that happened before and things that happened after. So the more you and I started talking about and, and probably here we should mention the people, the far riot was something that happened in, in 1971, I think, One. 71, 71. in the city of Far in South Texas, for those who are not familiar with it where um, there were some protests that led up to an event. There were some issues that caused those protests. A person died. A, a man was shot by the authorities. Uh, at least that's the story. It was an accident. It was an accident. Right. Uh, at least that's the official story, as they say. Are you saying there's a, <laughs> an unofficial? Well, I, I think when, when you look at events like that, you see that there are different versions of that. When you talk to other people, they see something else. The people who investigated, the, the authorities, came up with their report. But I think if you talk to other people, I think you will, we find that they see it from a different perspective. It may have been accidental, but it certainly was not preventable. I mean, it certainly was preventable, rather. 
was not preventable in the sense if they hadn't had the riot, I suppose, or if they hadn't responded, if the authorities hadn't responded as they did in the manner. Right. So that got us to thinking. And the more we, we explored it, the more we thought, well, it, it is part of a long history of events. And the more we went back, well, what came before this and what came before that and before that and before that? We see that Texas essentially is in a constant state of flux. It's constantly changing. It is transforming yeah. from uh, one thing to another. And le at least that's my theory. If you look back at, at uh, when most historians look back at Texas and they say, when did it start? They, they look back at Stephen Austin and, and his uh, group of people that he brought in from the United States into Texas, central Texas. But if you look further, there's, of course, the Spaniards who came in and, and started colonizing uh, central yeah. and south Texas. And even the East Texas, and before yeah. that, of course, you had the that Indians. Does. Yep, all the way, all the way there. So from that point on, it is constantly changing as people come in. They change the the culture, the politics, the language, the perspective, the power relationships, all those kinds of things. And it leads up in through um, Texas Revolution into statehood into the, the essentially a settling of, of, of West Texas and the expansion of the United States, and then in, in, into the 18th and, and uh, 1800s, 1900s, and even to, to, to today, where we see change coming in. So I, that, at least that's my perspective. What's your perspective on this? Of that, that um, history is never static. Well, I say history is never static. It's not static, I guess, to use a cliche at a granular level, people get up and if you, if you look back at the so-called Middle Ages or the Dark Ages, which I've, I've read historians think we now think it wasn't quite as dark as now as we did then. When the life, life went from week to week pretty much the same for long periods of time, for, for years, things fundamentally didn't change. Uh, there were no new or significant uh, inventions or discoveries that made life easier or created more wealth uh, or changed the power arrangements. But we know on a day-to-day -day basis, things change. No great leap forward, uh, whether um, whether intellectual, physical, or military, happens from one day to the next. It's the result of, unless it's just a complete act of serendipity, like the far riot, it, it happened on one day, but it was the consequence of arguably years, even decades of striving, thinking, desiring, militating, asking for, and then boom, one day it all blew up. But uh, yeah, if you look at the, the olden days, the old times back in the first millennium into the second millennium, things were on a day-to-day -day level were, were moving along. Life was proceeding and then there would be these big events that would uh, change things. But the events were the, I hope I'm making sense to people, the events themselves just didn't happen one day. We didn't get up one day and discover gunpowder. The gunpowder was, in fact, discovered by the Chinese, and maybe we stole it from them. But the great, well, I'm trying to say, the, the English longbow, which is not the discovery of Texas, but the English longbow, I know just enough about it to know that it didn't happen from from one Monday to a Friday. They had this marvelous new military weapon that really, because of its ferocity and because of its distance, it changed the way warfare was conducted because now you could shoot somebody, kill them at a huge distance, whereas before you had to get up close to chop them with an axe or something. 
it also leveled it also leveled the fighting the stature of the fighting men because it was all men because now um, a yeoman or a non uh, noble a non nobleman a non wealthy person could kill a wealthy person at a great distance whereas before you had to have you had to have their you had to be equipped like a knight in order to be equal on the battlefield so where ideas get started and how they get propelled along and what gets started but then doesn't go anywhere that's always been of interest i mean how life was lived on a day-to-day level like we know at the far raya but why that day and why a poor guy who was getting his hair cut the the riot took place and it wasn't it was called to be a protest and it turned into a riot um and then some guy getting his hair cut i don't even know how far away but it wasn't that far away he's gets out of the barber chair and steps outside the barber shop to find out what all the noise is about. And a deputy discharges his weapon, which he shouldn't have done. And the bullet ricocheted and hit this guy in the head and killed him. And if he hadn't been killed, would we be paying as much attention to the far right? Probably not. You know, no, cause probably there was, not. There was no great change immediately after the riot. It led to things. Right. Uh, but, but even calling it a riot, when we've talked to some people, they see it as a police riot. Yeah that the police overreacted or that they planned to do certain things like turn on the, the water hoses on, on Spray people. everybody. Yeah. yeah uh, that that had already been kind of pre-planned or that's the allegation. So again, it, it goes back to perspective and, and looking at it. And, and then after the riot, how did people feel about it? What did they do about it? And you see, at least I think we start to see at least in far the ascendancy of, of the Mexican Americans politically, yeah, they start taking over political office, and you start to see the not necessarily the drop, but the reduction in Anglo participation. I think they start seeing their control, their dominance is is no longer there, and so therefore they start kind of moving away from that direct involvement. You think so? I think so. I think we start seeing just if you look at who was running afterwards. Yeah. You see very few Anglos running. And whereas before, before the riot, uh, the majority were, were Anglos who were yeah. running for school board, for city and county and so on. Uh, well, at least in far. But I think if, if you start looking across the, the region, all these other things are, weren't being caused. The fact that somebody else in another city was running was not a result of, of the riot, but it was a result of similar kinds of, of feelings yeah. running across the region. The far right kind of crystallized certain things for people, and they realized that they could actually take action. And I think that that scared a lot of people. And I think they the the power structures started to see that. And it's it's even it's not just within the United uh, South Texas, but at the time we see there's a lot of uh, turmoil going across the country. We've we've had by that time we've had riots in several cities across the country and even back into the civil not civil I'm sorry World War II in that area you had uh, some riots in Oh in yeah. The, uh, there was a zoot suit riot in, in Los Angeles. In Los it? Angeles, yes. And I think there were some riots in Atlanta or somewhere else in the south I, I don't I'd have to look that up but I know there were some some uh, confrontations there. Uh, similar again uh, civil rights uh, which is kind of the part of the history of, of that group. So I think they saw that they saw that uh, 
There was a lot of dissatisfaction with the fact that they were the dominant population, uh, at least in numbers, but yet they didn't have representation, or at least not sufficient representation. So I think they saw that that was, that was coming up, and they saw that in not just in FAR, but you see it in San Juan, you see it in other places. And then things kind of go from there. We can see that as, as, a, as a flashpoint and follow it backwards and follow it forwards. So you're saying things got out of hand after that. That'd be one way to put it. In, in a way, I guess. You have a more sense of humor. Depending on your perspective, sure, you could say that. Yeah, I shouldn't say I know what the fear was because I don't know what the fear was. I can only assume what the fear was. The fear of being governed by people you don't really know or with points of view you don't really understand what they are. You know, the question would be other than other than just feeling a part of it or the ability to participate, the ability to run and have a chance, a real chance to win, what is it people wanted? Was it they weren't getting from the from the existing power structure that they uh, they thought they could achieve if they had enough of their thinking people on a city commission or county commission? I, I don't know. You know, I, I, sometimes it, um, you and I have talked about north of, you know, that the railroad runs through at least Hidalgo County. Mm-hmm. Most of yes. And it splits towns because towns grew up on, along the railroad. So some people live south of the railroad, other people live north of the railroad. So and uh, in far, you lived north of the railroad, you yourself? At one point, yes. All right. Well, that was was that the Mexican part of town or Mexico? Yes. In it San was. Benito, they called it Mexiquita. So as a practical matter, whether it was legal, whether it was in law or not, you couldn't have bought a house on the south side, the Anglo side of town. At one right. time. True. Um, they, they would not have sold to you. They would, wouldn't have even considered selling to you. But it was um, not, it was more, um, I say more, I believe it was more tangible in that. What were you telling me? To, I mean, we grew up with pit privies. People had outhouses. Right. And then you can see later on houses, a t- a, a toilets or plumbing facilities attached to the outside of a house which I always assumed was done in that fashion because it was cheaper than putting it internal to the house, but I don't know that, or it was added on afterwards. And that we did away with pit privies. For, yeah. Uh, if, if you look back at, at for example, FAR, uh, pre-1971, North FAR, you had very few paved streets. South FAR, had just about all the streets were paved, but North FAR had a few paved streets. And in some cases, there was no, in, in many cases, there there was no sewer extended into the area. There was a sewer system on the south side and some parts along the north side, but, but certainly not the, the large part of North Far. And drainage, uh, again, the same thing. When it rained, it, oh, it was gosh. just a, a horror thing to, to get from one end to, to the other to be able to drive. And your like, part of town, it was streets yeah. flooded and all that kind of stuff? Streets flooded. Pit previews, if, if the rain was very heavy, as I assume it was during, say, during Beulah, I mean, all those things just overflowed. <laughs> that's, a, that's, enough, <clears throat> that's enough of that, sir. Yeah, let's, let's talk about something else. But people saw uh, the that's, that's a disease problem. Certainly yeah. can be a disease problem because urine is sterile. Feces is not. Feces carries disease. So, Okay. You know. And I guess y'all just sort of felt left out and, and um, as I would say, put upon, not treated fairly. And you weren't treated. I mean, they, that's not fair treatment. It's not equal treatment. Right. And people, you could see it. It was very blatant. The south side had the amenities and the north side did not. And it was the same thing in other communities all the way across south Texas. And not just in, in, in the valley, anywhere. Essentially, in, in Texas, you had poor communities. And yeah. that was that was 
probably very obvious to people. And I think those are the kinds of things that they saw. I wonder if that, I wonder if that ground on people or made people mad or made people more mad than, say, the inability to vote or the di- difficulty voting or you know, some um, some I, intangible I, sort of thing. Here's a tangible thing. I can't get running water in my house. They won't pave my street because, right. and I, Plus, what do they it, say? No, we don't pave Mexican streets or, well, we don't have any money. I mean, how, how overt was it? I have no idea. I, I don't know what what the response was. I'm sure people complained and they were just, I have no idea. I have no idea what the response would have been. But the thing about that is that it's a daily frustration. Yeah. Every day you're running, you're driving through uh, streets that are bumpy, and every time it rains, you vote once a year or once every couple of years, but you live there every single day. Yeah. Your kids walk to school, had to walk to school through the mud. So I think those kinds of daily life frustrations are, are a lot of what irritated people. That and and I'm sure other things. You know, other people were con- other people were concerned about the inability to vote or or the obstacles to voting. You had the poll tax back then. To, there was a certain point where it it was uh, eliminated. But if if you didn't want to pay the poll tax or you couldn't pay the poll tax, then that was a frustration. But again, that was a once every couple of years or yeah. four years. But you had to pay a tax. You had to pay a, a tax to the county for the right to vote, and the tax was. Whatever the price was, I don't know, was sufficiently large that working class people couldn't typically couldn't afford it. Did you all pay the poll tax? I don't remember it being in place by the time. No, by the time I got to vote, it it was no longer in place. But I believe my my father did. I remember he voted. There's also the idea that politicians would pay your poll tax. Yeah. If you voted for them, they would essentially they were paying you. Well, not paying you. Buying a vote. They were essentially buying a vote. But anyway, I think we're we're getting into the details of uh, that, some of the recall, that was an enormous uh, an enormous um, issue that that was a real rallying cry. I guess we call civil rights workers, but that's not a very good description. That was a big, as I remember, that was a big thing coming out of World War II. No, poll tax running against poll tax. Do you think that the 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 social upheaval in the River Grand Valley was less about ethereal things and more about concrete things like water, sewer? paved streets it was it was less about intangibles i think it, it it was both but i think if you ask us as we would say the common man it's the day-to-day thing i think there's a certain group of people that focus on on the more the legal issues yeah and but i think most people day-to-day think about it but it's not something that's pressing on them but the the daily things uh, of not getting your trash picked up or not having trash service or not having running water there may there were areas of town that probably didn't have running water where you had to truck in your water. Mm. You had to get a 55-gallon barrel and go somewhere, fill it up, and bring it back home. Well, I remember a colonia north of Brownsville when I was a TV news reporter for Channel 4. <clears throat> they had, uh, it was Cameron Park, at least part of Cameron Park then. This is God, 40 years ago. Yeah. They had to truck in water, or they got it out of a irrigation canal. Mm-hmm. which you had to filter the dirt out before you can use it. Forget about the chemicals that might be in the water. Uh, I want to, I, I would hope people would hear our podcast and go, well, I remember this, or I have a letter. People keep diaries. They write letters. They hold on to those letters and diaries where, where people can record daily occurrences. My father-in-law's mother recorded 
daily occurrences like baking X number of pies, just mundane things. Because, you know, we can track, society tracks political events pretty good, but the day-to-day stuff, the how people live, what they have to put up with, what they enjoy, that's, to me, really important. To, it's interesting, number one. Number two, it's important to know how people do that because that goes on to become, become something tangible. And I'm thinking about, I can never remember his name, but his father, he worked for the county for years, Villegas, Mr. Mr. Villegas, who died in his 90s. And he had been a county employee at one point and uh, involved in politics. But his father, didn't he say his father had a store on the south side of the town? South no. Side of Far- no, on the north side of Far. Oh, it was. Yeah, what am I saying? Yeah. He had a store that was a um, family, ga- I mean, it was a gathering place for people. And uh, people went to see his father to seek his blessing if they were thinking about running for office? Uh, I, I guess he was he was connected to, to some of the political groups. And if you wanted to run, you would obviously want to have their support because back then there, there was uh, machine politics. I mean, we still have machine politics to some extent. It's just a different kind of machines. But you would, and, and he was also an advocate to some extent. You had people who were intermediaries. If, if I was having trouble with one thing or another, with the city maybe or the school oh. district, I would go to him and he might make some phone calls on my behalf and say, hey, what's going on with this guy? You know? Didn't you say your mother was a woman of influence in the neighborhood? Oh, at, at, a, at a personal level, not, not, in any, oh. not outside of that. She was an advisor and counselor to people of sorts. Um, she, she was kind of um, a Dr. Phil of sorts. She gave people some tu- some tough advice, uh, wow. which sometimes they didn't want to hear, and sometimes if if, if they were smart, they followed her advice. Uh, did, did you follow her advice? Uh, unfortunately, no, I did not. <laughs> we will. Is there anything in particular you want to find out about? Any? You mentioned stories, and, yeah. and you mentioned uh, uh, diaries. People have stories about their families. We'd like to hear those stories. As, as I've mentioned to you before, my father would tell me stories about uh, things that happened back when he was a child that he mm-hmm. remembers back in, in, I guess, during the Depression there and, and during Prohibition. Uh, you had uh, people bringing uh, contraband from Mexico. They smuggled tequila, didn't they? They, they smuggled tequila. all kinds of liquor and other things. And every once in a while, there would be a body found um, somewhere in a field or, or on, a, on, a, on the uh, canal bank because they used the canals to get up and down. There was, it, it was an easy trail to follow. Oh. Because the canals came from the river. You yeah. Follow that to, to some meeting point somewhere or delivery point. And every once in a while, they would, there was a report of a body found. And uh, the assumption was, in some cases, they may have known. some cases, they just assumed that it was the rangers because the rangers would patrol the area. And they would they say get the rangers, blamed for everything, those guys. They, they do get blamed for, for a lot of things. And, and some of it, uh, yes, they were responsible. Is it even true? <laughs> uh, that part, I don't know. But, uh, but there are stories about that, that uh, what would happen in where was your father? Your father and mother were raised here, right? Uh, my father was born here. My mother was born in Reynosa. But when she was a young, her, her grandmother, I believe on her father's side, her grandmother was actually an American citizen. She lived here. So she would always come back and forth. Um, oh. So for her, it, 
she kind of lived on both sides. Oh, but, uh, were things more bicultural then than they are now, do you think? Well, it was easier to get back and forth. Yeah. It was a lot easier for people to move back, to move here and ask for a visa or, or get a green card or something like that. Uh, because I believe she got hers in, in the um, 40s, maybe. So back then they were looking for workers, so it was easier for people from yeah. Mexico to come over. Um, your family was, has never been politically engaged in the larger at all, other than you. You ran for city commission one time, and that was that was enough for your wife, anyway. Yeah, yeah, that was en- that was enough for me too. You know, it was a um, I lost, and uh, it, it was not a good feeling. You, but you, I, you didn't expect to win, did you? Um, I, in a way, yes, I did because yeah. I was the. The, the guy who was running for, for mayor, or he was mayor, he got elected, but uh, the other people on the ticket didn't, which is strange that he got elected, but we didn't. Yeah. Uh, but I learned a lot about the political uh, uh, races. I had been involved peripherally before, you know, campaigning for candidates here and there, doing some yeah. canvassing, those kinds of things, but not as a candidate. But afterwards, I was involved in, in running a campaign, which was successful. And really? Just, and, Who yes. was it? I know. Uh, I'm trying to remember. It was for, uh, golly. Ramsey Muniz when no, he no. ran for governor. That <laughs> didn't work. No, actually, it was for Leo Palacios. Huh. Uh, far politics is strange because the, the, during our first race, uh, the people that I was running with, we were against Polo Palacios. And <laughs> then there was a switch of allegiances uh, almost uh, en masse between Palacios and because he won, and um, and then but he fell out with his group of people. And then he aligned himself with the people that I had been running with, so who were my friends. Oh. So I helped them out, and that campaign won. And and uh, it's too complicated. It it is because the the alliances were constantly shifting, and oh. and they still are. Even now, even now they they still shift. And it, it may be just the politics of convenience of, uh, look, I want to get elected. I don't care who I run with. And, and the, the fact of the matter is that most of the people who run for city commission are going to do about the same thing. They're going to pave streets. They're going to build water plants, parks, and so on. Uh, cities in and of themselves don't have a lot of flexibility about doing great things unless they have a great imagination. Oh, Some cities can be very innovative and do a lot of great things, but day to day they do the basic stuff. You know, police, well, that's what water, trash. You and I have talked about what what has been a constant, it seems to me, through Valley politics when when they're not like doing farm worker stuff or that kind of thing. Um, it's always about the, it's always about delivery of hard goods, paving, water. Now, some people would say that it's who gets the contracts for those hard goods. That's what the political play is now, because that's where you can make money. When we were young, uh, right, there really wasn't the Hispanic or Mexican-American professional class or technically trained class on one level. Um, you didn't have, I'm, not sh- I'm not sure how many Hispanic or Spanish surname contractors there would have been or caliche haulers or that kind of thing. That would be an interesting thing to find out is how many, just flat, how many people were in business. Because at some point it just, it just proliferated, um, which would make sense since Hispanics are now like 80%, 85% of the population. 
Um, yes. Well, I think the, the key there is how many of them started going to school in terms of college degrees and so yeah. on and were able to go into business on their own. Well, do you think, kinds of- I, I've always said, and I didn't say it flipply, it can, it can be said as kind of a joke, but the great, the great, the anti-poverty programs of uh, LBJ really, really changed things because the, they, all this money came in, they had these programs and maybe the guys who, because it was always men who were in charge of the programs, weren't the greatest in some cases, but their children, it created a, pros- a level of prosperity for people. It created jobs for people who, if it hadn't been for those programs, I don't know what they would have done because we didn't have a robust, varied economy. We had an agricultural economy for, for a long time. Then all of a sudden people had, they wore suits and went to offices and shuffled paper around. Their kids went off to school. But so things, the economy seemed to change real, to me anyway, real fast. Um, and it created a, an educated Hispanic class, a Spanish surname class was created virtually overnight in, in a cosmic contest. That's what it, I think. It was. It was, it was dramatic uh, from, say, 1965. And I think you can, you can track, if you, and that's an interesting thing to look at, is census numbers and figure out. When did the the large number of, well, relatively large number of local people with college degrees start to grow? Yeah. If you look pre pre nineteen sixty, it I'm ass, I'm assuming it was relatively low. Right now we're at about seventeen percent of, of the adult population has a some kind of college degree, and I'm just guessing that pre nineteen sixty it was hard. probably around five percent. Wouldn't it wouldn't been very many at all. No. One thing I've noticed, I, I look at the obituaries in the monitor a lot, and which is not ghoulish, but I've noticed a theme out of Star County deceased people. A whole lot of them uh, got educations back in the 30s and 40s. A lot of teachers, um, a lot of women being going off to Incarnate Word in San Antonio. I mean, I say a lot, just enough to get my kept my attention. So there's always been an educated class of people. Um, I say class, um, but it just, it was never, I'm, I'm guessing it wasn't sufficient to bust through the, what would you call it? The anti, the, the, the anti-Hispanic establishment or the Anglo establishment that it won. I, I don't it know, didn't I, have, there wasn't enough critical mass yeah. of that. And I think part of the reason that people did do that, that they, they sent their kids off somewhere else was you didn't have yet a local university of the caliber that people would want. Yeah. You had Pan American College and before that Edinburgh Regional College, which really were not at that stature yet. So if you had the money, you could have and you could afford to send your kid elsewhere or you could sacrifice for that. You went somewhere else. You went to, to uh, San Antonio or, or to Austin yeah. or AM. Whoop! <laughs> And it was always recruited down here. I don't I take that back. I don't know if that's true or not. But um, well, that's that's um, seems to me things have in societal terms, things have changed pretty fast. It's never fast enough if you want it to change. Right. The watch pot never boils. That's so not true. That's it always one, boils. It always if, boils. If I'm right, if I'm right, uh, then this is one case where a government program or Bunches of government programs actually have a concrete, tangible um, effect 
Although it may not have been the effect that they wanted. It may not have been the effect that, that was intended. It was a ancillary thing. Let's talk a little bit about uh, post-Tar riot. So after, uh, after the riot, we start seeing uh, more people running, at least uh, it seems like we start seeing more people running, or more Hispanics rather, well, running were, for office and, and getting an office uh, well, the, across uh, the mayor. The mayor who people didn't like because they, what we have heard was they thought he was uh, heavy-handed. I guess is the one way to put it. Miss um, Mayor Bo and Hart and Far. He'd been mayor mm -hmm. there for a while. His group controlled everything. The riot was in some ways a reaction against that. His police force that people felt like were, you know, heavy-handed. And um, then a group of people, including a number of Anglo's, or was it all Anglo, went to a young uh, a young CPA, certified public accountant, A.C. Jaime. And, you know, what occurs to me is I don't remember why they would know of A.C. Jaime to go to him, but he had a, Jaime had a bunch of tax accounts or accounting accounts, and they went to him and said, you got to run. So we can infer from that that relations were not good. And the, these Anglo guys, whoever they were, recognized that they needed to, things needed to change. And he ran and there's a bunch of cantinas on North Cage Boulevard by packing sheds, and some of whom were his clients. He did their he did their book work for them. their taxes, sure. Uh, and there was prostitution going on, and the working man was losing his paycheck to, in the in the saloons, and I, you know they cleaned all that up. And that um, I remember Don, the late Don Mallory. Most of the listeners won't know who he is. He was a very bright reporter at Channel Four. Uh, said he thought that the city commission that came out of the far riots after Jaime was recruited to run as mayor was the best city commission he'd ever seen. And Don was a very smart guy. He'd been a Rhodes Scholar. They did something right. They did something that, that often doesn't happen now. They had a, a rather balanced city commission. I think they had uh, a couple of Anglos and a couple of Hispanics and, and then the mayor, of course, being, being Mexican-American. And they seemed to get along well. They didn't fight. It, uh, they uh, they opted to have a professional city manager, which I think is one of the keys that makes uh -huh. those things work, is having the professional staff and giving the city manager control of hiring and firing versus the city commission. Before that, you had the, the mayor and a couple of city commissioners who would control pretty much, in, if I remember correctly, at one point. Those city commissioners actually supervised departments directly. <laughs> well, I think they're doing that still some places. Well, yes, I'm, I'm sure you have commissioners, and, and I've heard stories of commissioners who at different cities who will call up the department heads and even individual staff and say, I want this done. That's not unusual. I, I think that that still happens. But um, I think that was uh, one of the turning points for a lot of cities in South Texas is yeah. that they started hiring professional staff and yeah. the fact that there were professional staff available. Yeah, Pan American, then Pan, Pan American, American was turning out good people. Pan American turned out uh, a, a core of teachers and they turned out a core of public administrators that have in, in, in their own way transformed South Texas. Most of the staff, city staff, professional city staff that you have today in South Texas, uh, or at least in the Fort County area, came from Pan American. Yeah. 
And, and then, of course, in, in some cases, they brought people from outside the area, which is also good. Uh, I think it's good to, to promote from within, but it, it's also valuable to, to bring people in from outside the area. Yeah, it's funny you say that because I thought about that. I've even said that on the, on the radio that Pan American hired people I've run into over the years dealing with them generally pretty good generally in fact more than more generally good good they're they're competent people it's the politicians who get in their way and won't let them do their jobs but you know i don't i don't know half of me wants to abolish all that and put me in charge but that's what people vote for they they vote for things often that don't work um, if, if people were smart they'd let us do things right that's right yeah, yeah. i'm I'm all for tyranny as long as I'm the tyrant. <laughs> I don't want to be in a tyranny where I'm not the tyrant. What is the point of having a tyranny if you're not the one who's in charge? Come on. <laughs> There's no point to that. <laughs> so we go back again. I, I know in one sense, FAR was a result of the labor organizing and the civil rights, well, civil rights stuff, which started before World War II. Remember, LULAC was... Yes, organizing in Texas, saying we're Americans too. Yeah, in the in the 30s, yeah, 30s and 40s. And then the labor organizers got involved at some point. I mean, straightforward AFL-CIO type people, farm workers union, their attempts to make inroads here in some ways at all, and the national civil rights push. We got our turn at that, if you want to put it that way. It hit here too, eventually. And most of those things, as, as we know, tend to start in the urban areas, yeah. the large urban areas, because it's a lot easier to organize when you have a, a compact neighborhood yeah. versus a large rural spread out area. I mean, that's just so much harder. Which we have now again. Yeah. At least there is a, they say, they say you can go drive out and find houses in the most unlikely places. People want their own little house, their own little piece of property, and I don't blame them. Well, right. I'm talked out, yo. Okay. Well, um, the one final appeal, if you're listening to our podcast, if you have stories of interest about South Texas and its development and, and how things have changed, if you have stories from your family or you know somebody who does, let us know. Or you have artifacts. Yeah. We want to, and I suppose even if it's some amazing claim, I had a guy claim one time on the radio that prominent person they had some land over near mission and their grandfather their relative got put in jail until he signed over the land to this guy and um you have to be able to prove that's the problem at least i think i'm i know in a news story you have to prove that proof is a it's always good to print true things (laughs) (laughs) which are not true we've had our run of that lately uh But, but you know but here we're talking about stories yeah yeah, we're, we're not we're not we're not news reporters. We want to hear people's stories, and and those stories though color how people view things. Oh yeah, you know it it may not be a true story, and I'm almost sure that the stories my dad told me are probably not as accurate as as they could be. But it colored his perception of things, and his yeah. perception, for example, of of law enforcement and Texas Rangers specifically. The police were not his friend. Is that what you're saying? The Rangers were not there to help. You know, you had to be careful. Sure. Well, that's really interesting because the the professionalization of the Rangers took place in the 30s, right? Around the turn of the last century. And I don't know how many years into the 20th century, the Rangers were a political, politically appointed force. At some point, they became professionalized. Now, I don't know what they were. 
on what their behavior was like as a professionalized operation. In other words, um, were there extrajudicial killings attributed to them even as professional force? Or was that something that just occurred during the bandit era? I mean, I don't remember. I don't know. No, if, if you, if you, there was this recent film about the uh, Texas Ranger who captured or killed Bonnie and Clyde. And he makes reference to, um, to an, an, an incident where he killed, as, as I think they say in, in the movie, he killed some Mexicans. Ooh. And I think that goes back into the maybe the 20s or the 30s. Well, that, yeah, into the 20s, maybe. Well, that's the stuff that resonates through families. Yep. And, uh, as you say, it shapes the way they view the world, the way they view politics, yeah. the way they view people. How they, how they view their position within society. Oh, yeah. Even we sort of come at it a little bit different. I, didn't, I, wouldn't have, you know, I wouldn't have thought of that, but it makes sense. It makes sense that you'd feel like you're target practice. You're the target during target practice. Yep. It would be uncool. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Coming up in our next podcast will be an interview with Aaron Pena, a still-practicing attorney and former city commissioner from Edinburgh. Subscribe to our podcast and get an alert when that podcast and future podcasts are posted. Again, thanks and please share your feedback and comments with us. Hasta luego y gracias.